G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome back to another episode of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. It took a long time to get here. We are finally at the end of season six, and that means this is going to be our last episode for a month or so while we take a study break. But before we disappear completely, well, momentarily, we thought we would do a bit of a recap of what we have covered and the lessons we have learned thus far as we have read through Genesis 6. Yeah, that's a great idea, Chris. Uh, First, I just want to apologise for not having this episode out last week. We had a ridiculous amount of technical difficulties and the audio that I got couldn't be salvaged, so we had to try again. But we'd run out of time last week. Hopefully you'll enjoy this one. And since I ended up with some extra time, I was able to put a bit more research into it as well, so it's worth the wait. So every season, as is our want, we look back over the previous episodes and pick out some highlights and some interesting things that we talked about throughout the season. And we try to put that in the larger context of everything else that we've learned so far since we started back in Genesis 1. And this has been a bit of a challenging season to cover. Genesis 6 really just functions as a lot of background leading into the main story, which is going to start in Genesis chapter 7. Yeah, that's right. We haven't even got into the action yet, but before we can talk about any of that, we really need to go back and look at some of the major themes that we picked up on in the earlier chapters of Genesis. So going back to Genesis 1, a major feature of that portion of the text is the consistent repetition of certain phrases that remind us about what creation actually is. Because creation's been defined for us by its biblical usage, and it's not about the origin of material things. It's about setting things apart. It's about dedicating certain things for certain purposes. And only God can do this unless he's acting through an agent who does that on his behalf, which case he gets the credit, so he's done it anyway. And the purpose of setting things apart is so that they'll be well-placed to function correctly as part of the big picture that God's painting. When God creates living things, he declares that they're very good because each is separated according to its kind and it reproduces according to that kind and everything works as it should. And it's not just the living things. Yeah, God creates distinction and order in time and space and the material world in which we live, and all of this is to ensure the proper functioning of the cosmos, which serves as God's temple. So everything from the lights in the sky to the creatures of the sea has a role to play in the great divine service that takes place in this cosmic temple. And as we transition from chapter 1 into chapter 2, we're introduced to mankind. We talked at length about the way that the man in this story functions as the archetype of all humanity, having been set apart by God uniquely to bear the image of God. And bearing that image is not just some kind of attribute or even a status, but it is a function described by that term translated as image, which elsewhere you will see rendered as idol. The purpose of an idol is to give locality to the deity and to provide a nexus through which his power is manifest in the world. And that means for humans all over the world, our purpose is to perform the work of God wherever we may be, representing him to the created world around us. No other created being has this distinction. That's unique to human beings, and that's part of what makes the human species such an important distinction to maintain. Now, we often hear people talk about the Garden of Eden as some kind of ideal that we're supposed to be trying to reclaim in the world. And as much as scripture, particularly here in the primeval history, has much to say about the evils of technology and civilization, 
I don't think it's accurate to presume that what we need is some kind of naturalistic or anti-technical utopia. After all, the transgression in the Garden of Eden was really around the unpreparedness for receiving knowledge as power, not that knowledge or technology or wisdom is inherently bad. So the problem there was that we were striving for something that we couldn't handle yet, and I say we because this isn't just the story of Adam and Eve, it's all of us. Back in season two, we talked a lot about how the man came from the ground and he was formed from the dust. And in season three, we learned that the ground, which represents the human population, was cursed because of what the man had done. And Tim, the way that you explained the idea of a curse as an unfavorable destiny made a lot of sense because we find the outcome of the curse playing out as we get into the flood story. That's right. And where the concept of Eden and the idea of that curse on the ground intersect is not in some kind of naturalistic understanding as if to say that we wouldn't have prickles growing in our grass if it hadn't been for Adam and Eve eating that fruit. Instead, the idea is that proximity to God is where we find the sustenance of our lives, and that trying to do things in a way that is disloyal to him results in a distance that in and of itself brings about our death. And that is the curse on the ground. Where people have attempted to defy that divine pronouncement by seeking immortality, God has had to step in, not just to uphold his word, but because immortality coupled with rebellion, is a miserable fate worse than death. And we're going to see Noah bring relief, rest and comfort to the human population that has been the recipient of this curse, not by undoing that curse, because Noah doesn't have that power, but he is going to liberate humanity from the oppression of the sons of Cain. Yeah, that's right. And speaking of Cain, who provided for us what seems to be the opposite of Eden, with his cities and his technology, We've got to remember that everything he strove to achieve and to gain was the result of his attempt to gain power over his fellow man. Again, this is part of that archetypal story, and we're supposed to see our own sons and daughters represented in Cain. The real damage was done in the disloyalty that Cain showed to God by turning to other gods to provide for his needs. We saw it first in the murder of his brother, but we see it again in his descendants as they take advantage of the sons of God, offering their own daughters in exchange for the power to oppress their fellow man and in the hope of immortality in spite of the curse. And that's where the giants came from. That's right. But before we get introduced to them, Genesis 5 paints a picture of the breakdown of humanity into two separate factions. We follow the line of those faithful to God through ten generations from Adam to Noah. But as we go along, we get an overwhelming sense that there's division and hostility and strife bubbling up to the surface. In fact, one side clearly dominates the other to the point where we find that Noah is the only one left who is righteous in the sight of God. Just when we get introduced to this saviour of the ancient world, Genesis 6 begins with a retelling of the story that has been told in Genesis 4 and Genesis 5, and this time it's made explicit to us that the sons of God have created a race of giants, living among men and destroying the human race from within. And the giants become so prolific that they effectively become that archetypal man in the story. Mankind has lost his humanity and has broken down all created boundaries. People at this time are living to satisfy their own impulses, just like animals, and they make no distinction between human and divine. Nothing is sacred to them, and everything is fair game for violent exploitation. That's the situation in which Noah finds himself, and in which God approaches Noah with the instruction to build an ark. I think that's a pretty good recap of where we've been on the podcast, but now I want to look more specifically at the stuff that we covered this season. We started the season by going back to school. We sure did, and what we learned was that the exiles in Babylon, who were among the educated class, were receiving a top-shelf Babylonian education under King Nebuchadnezzar. 
They learned to read and write in cuneiform script, and they learned the language and literature of the Babylonians, as we are told explicitly in Daniel chapter 1. And that explains how Jewish scribes had this familiarity with so many Babylonian stories. Right. It also means that we've got a really solid basis to interpret Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, in light of the cultural context of Mesopotamian mythology, specifically the Apkalu tradition, which presents the Anunnaki as the benefactors of the technologies of civilization to the Babylonian people. And of course, the Jews will portray them as the fallen sons of God who succumbed to temptation and thus fell under the judgment of God, which is a theme we're going to be spending a lot more time on over the next couple of seasons. Early this season, we celebrated 100 episodes of the show. Ooh, yeah. And it was quite fitting that right then, we happened to be covering the core material that both the podcast and your book were inspired by. Ooh, yeah. That's right, Chris. It was nice to be able to celebrate that milestone, and we spent some time, quite appropriately, I think, drawing out some truth from that passage, which usually gets overlooked by both the mainstream commentators and the fringe Bible study crowd. And that is remembering that we're still in that archetypal narrative, which presents all mankind as desperately wicked and in need of a saviour. But unfortunately for the people of Noah's day, they really did take that depravity too far. Not only that, but they'd fallen victim to intelligent evil, crossing from the spiritual into the natural realm. At least that's how we would talk about it in modern terminology, but for ancient people, they didn't really make those distinctions. So, of course, we spent some time talking about the giants and showed conclusively that the word Nephilim really should be translated as it is in the King James Version, where it clearly says giants. Still, I can't believe when I tried to record this the second time that the cuckoo clock in the background went off right there. I go, as it is in the King James Version, where it clearly says, and then in the background, there's this cuckoo clock going off. <laughs> it's the best timing I've ever heard. Anyway, so uh, yeah, you can forget all that nonsense about all the fallen ones and that kind of thing. Uh, but that came after we explored that strange verse in Genesis 6-3 about the mortality of the Nephilim and the limited forbearance of God in his administration of the Holy Spirit to mankind. That was a really interesting thing to talk about. It certainly was, and then we did a kind of greatest hits compilation where we spent four episodes going back over the questions people had sent us about the giants. So I feel like since then we've had a lot less questions specifically about giants, but we're still getting heaps of good food for thought coming in from our lovely listeners. Yeah, I think that's a fair comment, Chris. We certainly covered a lot of ground there, and those episodes now provide a great resource for people who have questions and want to know where to look. Even so, that's only a small portion of the information that you can get from the book answers the giant questions. Four complete episodes full of Q&A was quite an achievement, but one of my favourite things this season was the interview that I did with Dr. Matthew Halstead, because it gave me a chance to ask some questions of my own, and it was a great opportunity for us to talk about that archetypal narrative that I keep banging on about, and how the Apostle Paul used that same device to communicate his theology, and more importantly, his Christology. And we were able to tie all this back into Genesis 6 in a discussion about the implications of this for the humanity of Noah's day. Yeah, that interview was really good, and it was a great opportunity to have a respected scholar on the program as a guest. And now that his new book is out, I think it's probably about time that we invite him back. That's a great idea. I'd love to have him back on the show, and I want to line up some more guests in the coming seasons of the podcast as well. Uh, by the way, I hear that he is keen to come back, so definitely line that up. Uh, things took a bit of a turn as we passed the midpoint of the season and started getting into the heavier questions posed by the flood story. We started looking at the issues, like how it's okay for God to wipe out almost everyone and every living thing in the world, and 
what we found was it's that exact question that makes our understanding of the biblical Nephilim so important. Yeah, that's right, Tim. When you recognize that the combination of supernatural and human evil is responsible for the breakdown and function of all living things, then God's action can be seen as healing and restoring the original creation. Exactly. And we had some fun talking about that animated movie Zootopia, which is about animals that live in the city and wear clothes and everything, and how they found it scandalous and shocking that there were animals who preferred to live as nudists. The point for our application being that just because everybody else is doing something unnatural, that doesn't make it wrong. And there we find Noah in his generation being the only one righteous while everyone else around him has become animalistic, violent and gigantic in their depravity and lust for power. After that, we started looking at the biblical flood story in light of its ancient Near Eastern background. And we started looking at other flood stories in the way that scholars interpreted the biblical story according to the source critical hypothesis. We read some of the other flood stories from the ancient Near East and some of the unusual language that carried through into the biblical story. Yeah, that was pretty fascinating. And after that, we got into the story Noah and we took another look at the man himself, which we hadn't done since the end of Genesis 5. But this time was a bit more of a an opportunity to dive deep into who he was and what made him so great. What I really liked in that episode was having an opportunity to talk about the generations of Noah and what that phrase specifically meant from a linguistic point of view. It's a fair bet that most people wouldn't have been aware of that literary context. And it's quite helpful because understanding that properly gets us out of the notion that this is all about genetics and DNA and that kind of thing. I mean, there's an extent to which that stuff is still in play, but it's not compatible with the mindset of the author or his first audience. And that's why I say we've got to think about these things the way that an ancient person would. We've got to approach the subject as the text gives it to us instead of importing our own modern ideas. After that, we started looking at what God had to say to Noah, and he begins by declaring that the end of all flesh has come before him. This one was a really big deal for helping us to understand the nature of God, because initially the impression we might have had from this text was that God has just decided he's going to destroy everything. But by the time we were done talking about the way that the text presents this, we could see that it was really an acknowledgement on the part of God that humans had pretty much destroyed everything already. And that puts us in a position to be able to understand that what God is doing is bringing about a new creation and not just getting mad and breaking stuff. We took a break over the Christmas and New Year holiday season, as we always do. And when we returned, we brought a perspective on the flood story that most people have probably never heard of before. Yeah, that's probably an understatement. I dropped tons of hints about this in my book, but never brought it out explicitly because for the purposes of the book, I felt that it distracted from the main points I was trying to make. So I started by looking at heaps of ancient flood stories and the terminology that they use, which compare the flood to a battle. And then we looked at war stories where the destruction of the battle was compared to a flood. And ultimately we came to realize that since the flood story is actually loaded with terminology that carries similar connotations, we could actually read the flood story as an account of an ancient battle between supernatural forces playing out in the real world of human experience. So we've devoted quite a lot of time to developing that understanding of this literary masterpiece and we will continue to explore the flood through that lens as we press on in the coming seasons of the podcast. One thing I enjoyed about this season in particular was when we looked at Noah's Ark and how it would have been built and what it was made of and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, gopher wood is totally not a thing. But we did learn a lot about boat stuff, and that's essentially what that phrase gopher wood means. And we found out that boat stuff in the ancient Near East was usually coils of rope made from reeds and made waterproof with bitumen or pitch. 
that thing about the Zohar was pretty cool too. I don't think I've ever come across anybody suggesting a solution for that the way that you did, but I've got to say it sounded pretty convincing. Well, it certainly made a lot of sense to me, even if it was a bit boring after all. Certainly not as exciting as Magic Rocks. We also learned a bit about Noah's function as priest in his sanctuary that he constructed. And we saw him making atonement for everyone and everything on board the ark. I think there are some good parallels there in a visual sense when we look at the Exodus and the lamb's blood on the doorposts. And I didn't realise at the time how important that was going to be until he started describing how the calendar dates that we find in the flood story were alluding to ancient mythology about the stars and how God had summoned these destroying angels to come down and take care of the giants. So it really made sense for Noah to protect his family, not just by putting them in a boat, but by making atonement to protect them from the wrath of God. Yeah, I'd say that's pretty important. And we've devoted a fair bit of time in recent episodes to helping people get their heads around this concept. So hopefully it's making sense. But if anybody has questions, we would love to hear them. Anyway, that brings us up to the last episode where we looked at the animals on board Noah's Ark and specifically what kind of animals they would have been and why they were there. But more importantly, we learned about the sanctity of God's creation and his purpose to restore everything the way he had made it in the first place. And it's not about destroying civilization or returning back to the Garden of Eden, but simply bringing back the clear distinction between the different things God had made in order that all things can function properly and work for mutual benefit. It's also about teaching mankind about the special and unique function that he has as God's image bearer in this cosmic temple. Sure, covered a lot of ground, but as you were saying before, all of this stuff is just preparation for the main event, which is going to happen over the next couple of chapters in Genesis. It looks like we're going to get into some very interesting territory as we read Chapter 7. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating. I can't wait, and I think the audience is going to enjoy it. Hopefully they have lots of great questions to send in. Indeed. So what do you think were the main lessons we can learn from Genesis 6? What are the big takeaways for you, Tim? Uh, For me, I think a big one is the importance of the humanity that God created us with. He didn't give that status or function or responsibility to, to any other species on the planet. And it's so important to him that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus, to redeem us from sin and death and to restore our relationship and, and that function uh, with, with him. And of course, when we read Genesis 6, we understand that it wasn't written about Jesus, but you can see the special love and care that God has for the human race in his compassion toward Noah and his family. That's so good. And uh, I also like how we can see God's compassion extended towards the animals as well. And that gives us a bit of a model to follow when it comes to the way that we too should be looking after all of God's creatures. Yeah. Another thing I really liked was that our interpretation of the flood narrative as a cosmic battle is based on a close reading of the text, consistent with that seen in the Second Temple period and works like First Enoch. What we haven't really touched on a great deal as yet is the way that New Testament authors do the same thing, but we're definitely going to get there. For me, it was a bit uh, mind-blowing when we realized that we had been following the story of the man all the way from Genesis 2, and when we arrive in Genesis 6, the man becomes a Nephilim, coming to terms with the fact that humankind had become so utterly lost that such a drastic intervention was necessary is a... Tough pill to swallow in a world where we've been brought up with the idea that man is essentially good. Yeah, that's right, Chris. Ultimately, we need to realize that only God is good and anything that he calls good is only good because he made it that way. That's not something we can do on our own despite our best efforts. Having said that, God does invite us to participate with him in bringing good order to the world. That was the expectation for Adam, and it was realized more fully in Noah. And we saw that in the obedience of Noah, 
who doesn't actually say anything for the entire duration of the flood story, but he does obey God. And that obedience is critical, especially when we see what's ahead for Noah and his family on board the ark when we start looking at chapter 7. That's right. It's about to get very real. Fortunately for us, a lot of the confusion has been removed from Genesis 7 already because we had that talk earlier in this season about the literary features of the story, which is constructed as a poetic narrative. And that means that the apparent conflict between different verses and repetition in others is all just part of the show. So we'll be halfway through the chapter before we actually get to the action part of the flood story. But as always, it's going to be packed with interesting details and amazing discoveries. And there's actually a fair bit of stuff from Genesis 7 that I do talk about quite explicitly in my book. So if you want a head start on understanding of the flood story and our coverage of Genesis 7 this season, it will be worth your while to pick up the book. By the way, I'm announcing here that the publisher has just reduced the price of the book. So now is a great time to get yourself a copy. Only $19.99 US dollars for the American market or 3,001 Japanese yen if that's your preferred currency. Actually, you can get it pretty much worldwide, so you don't need to go to America or Japan unless you want to. I'd, I'd love to visit Japan. As would I. That would be super cool. And uh, speaking of cool stuff, we had some awesome questions from our listeners this season. And I'm not just talking about the epic four-episode recap that we did on specifically giant-related questions. Yeah, that's right. Now, first question for the season came from a guy whose name is Noah, so you just know it was going to be good. And he asked about the book of Jonah and how we should understand the idea of Jonah being swallowed by a big fish. What is it with guys called Noah and lots of water? Now, that was a really cool topic to cover, and it might have been one of my favorite listener-submitted questions ever. And the following week, we had another question from Noah about his namesake. After that, we had a question from Ron about the sons of God in Genesis 6 and how we should understand who or what they are. And that got us into an interesting discussion about what it means to be a son of God. Yeah, that was a good one. And the week after that, we got a question from Mark, which was about the Tower of Babel and what God meant when he said that nothing would be impossible for the people building the tower. Again, a really interesting question, which generated some good discussion. We also did what was possibly the biggest round of rapid-fire Q&A that we've ever done on the show, and I think we had 11 questions that time. Yeah, that one was funny, especially because some of the questions were pranks sent in by our friends. Uh, later, we got a question from Evan, and it was about Judgment Day, which was a fun topic to tackle because we don't normally get eschatology questions. But we ended up talking about giants anyway. Dude was all apologetic because his question wasn't about giants, and then we went there anyhow. <laughs> Uh, it's almost like the giants are one of the central themes of Scripture. Who would have thought that? And then we've right. got a question from our mate Warren uh, about Isaiah chapter 14, which is quite an interesting conversation. We ended up talking about ancient poetry and the epic of Gilgamesh. Yeah, we also had somebody submit a question anonymously through the website, giantanswers.com, and I'd like to remind our listeners that you don't have to put your name on the form when you send in a question. We're not harvesting your data or anything. And that question was about how to understand the days of Noah in Matthew chapter 24 and what it meant to be eating and drinking in those days. And that was actually the first of a couple of anonymous questions that we got through the website because we got another one about the Amalekites and how we understood that they were giants. And that one was potentially controversial in light of recent political developments. We also had a question from somebody with an awesome name from the Superman mythos. Lois asked a question about ancient Near Eastern cosmology and whether everybody understood it the way that Tim explains it in his book and on the podcast, or if that was an understanding unique to the Hebrews. Yeah, that was a great question, and it's not the first time that I've had questions of that nature, but I love taking the time to show people how naturally the biblical authors use everyday language to talk about stuff that would otherwise be difficult to grasp conceptually. 
And we were able to show that even the ancient Egyptians had a similar view when we examined the logic behind their own cosmology. Then we had that question about the animals in Noah's Ark, and that was a controversial one because you can't talk about that without the larger controversy around the extent of the flood and the way that many people connect those ideas with the age of the earth. But it was really good that Daniel asked the question, and his concerns there will be further addressed over the next couple of seasons as we continue to go through the flood story. We've got another question about giant tribes, and this time was about the Kenites. Um, I'm assuming not related to Barbie. Uh, we don't hear a lot about them, so it was good to dive into that and to break down an old conspiracy theory that suggested they were the seed of Satan in an unbroken bloodline from Cain, the first murderer through to the Pharisees of the first century. That was a pretty cool question. Thanks to Greta for sending that one in. And then we had an interesting one about transhumanism, which is something that I touched on briefly in my book, and Henry had some questions about that. Last question for the season came from our friend Jason and it was about what methods were used to destroy the gates of cities in the time of King David. And of course we didn't just find an answer to the question, we tied that back into something about the Giants as well. It's been a pretty epic season, quite literally. And I'm sure the next season is going to be even epicer. Uh, before we take a break over the next month in order to prepare next season's episode can't leave you without a bit of Q and followed up by a bit of A. I like both of those things. Good, because you're about to receive one and give one. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible, or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. I personally receive all your mail, and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you get answers to your giant questions. Asseline asked in the Fallen Angels, excuse me if I uh, said the name wrong, and Nephilim group on Facebook, who are the Eliud? And also, forgive me if I said that name wrong. Well, I don't think anyone knows how to say it right, so you're okay there. That is a really good question. For those who haven't heard of the Eliud, they are thought to be a class of semi-divine being associated with the Nephilim in a small number of Second Temple period texts and later translations from Hellenistic Jewish and Christian authors. They don't have any real details about them in those texts. They're only mentioned in passing, which makes the whole thing rather mysterious. And I say Hellenistic authors because you don't get the Eliud mentioned in either the Aramaic or Ethiopic manuscripts of First Enoch, but they do appear in the Greek. The main early source we have comes from the Book of Jubilees, which depends on First Enoch. But between the two, that is between Enoch and Jubilees, they have a different version of events. Let's have a look at some text. We're going to start with Jubilees chapter 7 from the R.H. Charles translation and picking it up from verse 20. And in the 28th Jubilee, Noah began to enjoin upon his sons' sons the ordinances and commandments and all the judgments that he knew. And he exhorted his sons to observe righteousness and to cover the shame of their flesh and to bless their creator and honor father and mother and love their neighbor and guard their souls from fornication and uncleanness and all iniquity. For owing to these three things came the flood upon the earth, namely owing to the fornication, wherein the watchers against the law of their ordinances went a-whoring after the daughters of men, and took themselves wives of all which they chose, and they made the beginning of uncleanness. And they begat sons, the Naphidim, and they were all unlike, and they devoured one another, and the giants slew the Naphil, and the Naphil slew the Elio, and the Elio mankind, and one man another. 
And everyone sold himself to work iniquity and to shed much blood, and the earth was filled with iniquity. And after this they sinned against the beasts and birds and all that moves and walks on the earth. And much blood was shed on the earth, and every imagination and desire of men imagined vanity and evil continually. And the Lord destroyed everything from off the face of the earth, because of the wickedness of their deeds, and because of the blood which they had shed in the midst of the earth, he destroyed everything. All right, so that's the end of our reading. In this translation, you'll see the term Elio. It's a different transliteration, but we're talking about the same thing. It's Elio in the Ethiopic and Eliud in the Greek. And for those listeners who've been following the podcast in recent episodes, you'll recognize right away that we're talking about the war that takes place in the days of Noah. It's very clear in this text that we're talking about a battle. And that's something that you'll see in the Second Temple Period texts. They really strive to make these things explicit. Now, you might be wondering why I read first from Jubilees instead of First Enoch, and that's because the provenance of the passage in First Enoch, where the Eliud are mentioned, is doubtful. When we read First Enoch, the most reliable manuscripts don't have these details. I'll show you what I mean. Here's First Enoch from the Charles translation. We're reading from chapter 7, verses 10 to 12. Then they took wives, each choosing for himself whom they began to approach and with whom they cohabited, teaching them sorcery, incantations, and the dividing of roots and trees. And the women, conceiving, brought forth giants. Now we have a little inclusion here in the text by our commentary from Charles, and he says, The Greek texts vary considerably from the Ethiopic text here. One Greek manuscript adds to this section, and they, that is the women, bore to them, that is the watchers, three races. First, the great giants. The giants brought forth, or some say slew, the Nephilim, and the Nephilim brought forth, or slew, the Eliud. And they existed, increasing in power according to their greatness. See the account in the book of Jubilees. And now we return to the translation in verse 12, whose stature was each 300 cubits. That's the end of the reading. So that's First Enoch from the critical edition by Charles, which incorporated notes based on the various translations available. The late Dr. Michael Heiser had this to say in his commentary on the Book of the Watchers, which is called A Companion to the Book of Enoch, Volume 1. He offers a comment on Nicholsburg's edition of First Enoch in chapter 7, verse 11. Quote, On the basis of the Greek, Nicholsburg expands this line, And the giants begat Nephilim, and to the Nephilim were born Eliud, and they grew according to their greatness. This in effect creates three generations of giants, the initial giants born to the Watchers and their wives, the Nephilim, and the Eliud. As Black notes, this insertion is almost certainly a gloss offered by Sincellus. George Sincellus was an 8th century Christian historian. Uh, To explain Genesis 6 verse 2, if so, Sincellus is interpreting Gibborim and Nephilim in Genesis 6 1-4, as two separate generations of giants. Eliud may, however, come from the Aramaic material, a Greek understanding of Yeludin, which means we're born to. You can see how that relates to another Semitic cognate term in Hebrew, which is Yelad, to bring forth. Uh, consequently, Eliud would be a misreading on the part of Sincellus. Nicholsberg notes that the parallel text in Jubilees 7.22 reads Elio in Ethiopic. Interestingly, Charles also observes that the words and the giants begot the Nephilim and to the Nephilim were born the Eliad have a corresponding passage in Jubilees. 
Charles says, Jubilee 721 to 22 is based on this passage in First Enoch and enables us to correct begot and were born to slew. This eliminates three distinct generations of giant offspring, but creates three subgroups or clans of the giants. Charles refers to them as classes. That's the end of the quote from Heiser. What that all means is we don't really have three different types of giants being described here. Instead, we've got translations of Nephilim and Giborim, which are both descriptive terms, used to refer to the same giants. Throw in the added confusion around the Aramaic and Ethiopic terms for begetting, and that's how we end up with the term Elio or Eliud, and a total three different types of giants, whether we're talking about clans or subgroups or species. And what we're learning here is that actually isn't the case based on the original material. The most interesting thing about this for our purposes in the larger context of this season of the podcast is the way that the author of Jubilees read the original language as slaying rather than begetting. Since the Aramaic and Ethiopic texts of First Enoch don't have this portion of the text, the author of Jubilees, writing in Syriac, would appear to have got it from the Greek First Enoch, although different versions of the Greek preserve two different readings there. So, the gloss that Black refers to that was provided by George Sincellus and subsequently adopted by Nicholsburg was picked up from the text of Jubilees and inserted into a translation of First Enoch that did not originally feature that portion. And he's changed the wording to make sure that it was consistent with his understanding of Genesis 6, all of which muddies the waters quite considerably. Now, what about the idea of these different groups of giants killing each other? How did we get that from Genesis 6, 1 to 4 originally? Because there's nothing in that passage about anyone slaying one another. As we read earlier, there were a couple of different versions of this inclusion in First Enoch in the Greek. One had begetting and the other had slaying. We've already determined that the language of begetting was the cause of confusion that brought about the supposed Eliud. But what about that other link in the chain? How did we end up with the great giants and the Naphidim? I'm going to suggest that just as the Eliud were a product of a misreading of Yeludin based on the Hebrew Yalad, we're probably seeing the so-called Naphidim as a corruption of Nephilim. So in this situation, an interpreter has suggested Naphidim. That would be closer in meaning to what the common interpretation of Nephilim you hear from many Bible commentators, where they suggest it means fallen or to fall upon as in battle. Uh, Now, we know that that's not how you're supposed to read Nephilim, but when you're dealing with a possibly corrupted or damaged manuscript, and that's how these variant readings often arise, you have to do your best. I think this ancient Greek interpreter has struggled with the original and assumed that it's talking about falling upon as if to slay, and they've imported that meaning to the text. The effect of that change is to create the idea that rather than subsequent generations being born in the text of First Enoch, they're killing one another. And in the wider context of the original source material, which is Genesis 6, we can now understand how an early interpreter would be thinking along those lines and suggest this as a legitimate reading of the passage they were translating. And of course, the next link in the chain is that the author of Jubilees has taken up this corrupted version of First Enoch with its questionable translation and made it part of his source material for the book of Jubilees. And that's had the effect in some early Jewish and Christian communities of canonizing the idea that three races of giants were at war with one another in the days before the flood. So in conclusion, it looks like the second and third generation of giants, including the Eliud, were accidentally invented by a misreading of ancient sources by later interpreters. And that means we have an interesting tradition of interpretation that has made people for at least 2,000 years think that there were different kinds of creatures descended from the Nephilim. 
I know this has been a bit of a confusing rabbit trail, but hopefully that's clear enough. So I'm not saying that there wasn't really warfare between the giants at the time of the flood, because as we're going to see next season, that is definitely going on in the Genesis flood story. But it's the awareness of that tradition of warfare and violence in the flood that led early interpreters to assume that that was what was going on in a part of the text that they were struggling with. But when we compare it to the other manuscript versions that we have and our understanding of the original source material from Genesis 6, we know how the story went in the first place. Well, that's about all the time we have for now, so hopefully that was a good answer for your question, Azaline, even though it probably would have been cool to be talking about wars between different races of giants in the pre-flood world. Thanks for sending that in. Yeah, that was a really interesting question to talk about, actually. You've really got to dig deep to find answers for this kind of thing, so well done. And I guess it would be pretty easy to get carried away with the uh, more sensational reading that makes it sound like there were all these different kinds of giants interbreeding and mutating and doing genetic engineering and all that kind of stuff. But as we've said plenty of times before on the podcast, that's all science fiction and fantasy. But when you understand the text and how different interpretations arise in these situations, it, it helps to make it all clear. I reckon the Bible is fascinating enough without getting carried away with that kind of thinking. That's exactly right, my friend. We've already got an amazing story here, and we've got to remember that the focus is always on the work of God and how we can participate in that in faithfulness and obedience like Noah. Amen, brother. Anyway, it's time to wrap it up there. As we mentioned earlier, it's now time for us to conclude Season 6, and we're going to take a break for about a month before we come back with Season 7 of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. And just in case you need your fix while we're on break, you can catch me making a guest appearance on the Truth and Shadow podcast, so check that out when it drops. I had a great chat with the host, BT, about the primeval history, so you'll find that wherever you get your podcasts. That sounds good. Hey, wait, does that mean you're dropping spoilers about what's coming up in the podcast? Possibly. (laughs) Well, you heard it here, folks. Uh, Check out the Truth and Shadow podcast while you're waiting for us to bring you Season 7. And don't forget to grab a copy of the book, Answers to Giant Questions, in preparation for that next season. It's going to be huge. That's right. And don't forget to send in your questions to be answered next season. We've already got some good ones coming in. Just hit the website, giantanswers.com. And there's one more thing I want to mention, which is that, uh, well, if you've been following my stuff on the social media, you might have picked up on this already. But uh, the band that I am a part of and supplies the music for our show, Grave Forsaken, uh, we have just dropped a new album so that is out and going uh, all over the interwebs at the moment and you can even get yourself a hard copy if you want uh, it will be it will be officially out on march 29th so yeah look out for that one it's called moment in time my grave forsaken and uh yeah if you if you like heavy metal and you like jesus and you like both of those things in the same noise, then you want to get hold of that. So that is Moment in Time by Grey Forsaken, coming out through soundmass.com. And yeah, you get that anywhere you get good music from March 29. You can pre-order now. There you go. I didn't realize that. Oh, yeah. Just happened. That's exciting. You kept that quiet. Uh, But, yeah, there's been a lot going on in the background uh, for a very long time because we've been working on that uh, for like three years or more. 
Cool, man. That's awesome. It's time to wrap up today's episode, but if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. This podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops we'll catch you next time on the answers to giant questions podcast thank you for listening to the answers to giant questions podcast a production of the raven creek social club if you like what you heard today please take a moment to rate or review the show music supplied under copyright by great forsaken greatforsaken.com you can get the book answers to giant questions by tj stedman on amazon in paperback and kindle format Check out the other podcasts at RavenCreeSC.com and go to GiantAnswers.com for more answers to giant questions. Read the blog and catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God Sorry, man, you're going to have to record that one again uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, I bumped the mic and my wife had a sneezing fit, which actually registered on this end. (laughs) That's a powerful sneeze. I think that's a pretty good recap of where we've been on the podcast. But now I want to. I think that's a pretty good recap of where we've been on the podcast. I think that's a pretty good recap of where we've been on the podcast. Exactly. The stroke of eight thirty. The dogs in the neighbourhood decided to begin a mournful chorus, which has only just ended, and I'm hoping will not be reprised. <laughs> no encore. Well, what a week it has been. Spending considerable time trying to salvage audio that could not be saved. Even though I sat down and recorded all my parts again, uh, I actually went to my in-laws' place to get some peace and quiet because it's so freaking hard to find a place to record now because my kids are staying up later at night. Wow. Uh, so, So I went to their house. I uh, found a nice quiet room where, you know, there's plenty of soft furnishings, no echo, you know, good for sound quality, uh, no interruptions, all really good. And I'm recording and I get sort of halfway through and I get to the bit where we talk about what the word Nephilim means. And so I'm like, and as we know, the word Nephilim actually means, and right at that very point, the cuckoo clock in the corner fires up <laughs> and just lets loose a string of cuckoos. And I'm just like, well, as infuriated as I am right now, that might be the most poetic and comedic occurrence <laughs> that I've ever had recording. Yeah. There was nobody to share it with. <laughs> then I realized that some good length of time before the computer crashed the first time, it had actually stopped picking up any sound at all. So I had lost so much audio, including yours, that I just I couldn't do anything with it because I didn't have anything to work with. So that was insanely frustrating. Yeah, uh, shortage of eggnog this week. Oh, dear. Um, yeah, I uh, neglected to make my weekly pilgrimage to my uh, supplier. Mm. So uh, bourbon it is. My brother invited me to go to the wrestling. Yeah, oh, cool. So we went to that WWE 
Yeah. Uh, Illumination Chamber. Chamber. Yeah. Where was that? Leaderville. At Optus Stadium. Yeah, 52,500 bogans in one place. Mm. Um, well, for, for the Americans, let's say rednecks. Um, I'm not sure that those two terms really overlap exactly, and I feel kind of racist saying redneck. <laughs> um, but then if I say bogans, I feel sort of, you know, classist. <laughs> Even though I... And, you know, by pretty much any measure, I'm a bogan, really. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, as I sit here in my shed drinking bourbon and recording a podcast. There's too much, like, darkness and drama and talking and soap opera stuff nowadays. Just, yes. Uh, yes. Uh, just doing the same, yeah. Yeah, they got halfway through the match and then cleared the ring and and people came running out with – pot plants and lounge chairs and stuff and they set up like a kind of talk show in the ring okay and then just like blabbed for half an hour about other wrestlers and other matches you know speculations about who might be at the next match and all the rest of it and the wrestling itself, for the most part, it was all right. I think it kind of lacked a bit of the fun and the flash of, you know, the, the old days wrestling that we were yeah. brought up on in the 80s. An awful lot of people laying on the ground trying to recover. And it's amazing how you can have six people in the ring and nobody moving. <laughs> for those who didn't watch, I, I believe a billion people watched. That's what they told us on the news. A billion, like... How, sorry, how many people are there in the world? No, we're like 8 billion. Yeah. We're saying that like one in eight, including countries that don't have electricity and, you know, the elderly and the newborn uh, and the infirm. <laughs> well, I don't know anyone that watched it. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I'm skeptical of those numbers. Mm. Apparently everyone who's anyone uh, was watching it and, had my brother not invited me, I would have not been one of the anyone who was anyone. Yes. Uh, but anyway, I was there, so that made me someone. Oh, goodness, the dogs are back. Can you hear that? I can. Mm. Yeah. Oh, that's loud. Yep. <laughs> I have never seen so many morbidly obese people in one place. I'm not saying you have to be fat to be a wrestler, but it helps. Huh. That friggin' dog is going to bark all night. Poisoning other people's dogs is frowned upon. Well, how do you define poison? Um, well, <laughs> I'm not sure that flexibility of definitions is going to get me out of that one, Chris. Look, I know a good lawyer. No, I don't, actually. <laughs>